And as we begin our time of study, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This will be the final lesson in the second chapter of James. And during tonight, we're going to be focusing our attention primarily on what James has to say in verses 25 and 26 of that second chapter. But before we dive into those verses, I do want us to read, starting in verse 20 tonight during our scripture reading. I want us to start in verse 20 of James chapter 2 during our scripture reading because reading those seven verses is going to help remind us of the contextual flow of James's argument as we prepare to bring this section of his letter to a conclusion. So, if you have your Bible open, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20, James chapter 2, out of the New American Standard Bible, and please follow along in your copy of the Word of God as I read. This is the Word of the living God, whom we worship and serve. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? (laughs) Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. May God write the eternal truths of this passage upon the hearts of us this evening. And may we be forever radically transformed by them. Is it ever appropriate for a Christian to lie? This was the opening question posed by Dr. Sam Storms in a 2018 article published on the Gospel Coalition's website. Is it ever appropriate for a Christian to lie? Well, when considered at a surface level uh, basis, this question seems like it has a very obvious answer. In fact, I heard some of you guys say it instinctively. said, of course it's never right for a Christian to tell a lie. In fact, just about every person who's ever self-identified as a Christian knows that God's moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, states the following, that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Seems obvious enough. Moreover, when we engage in a cursory reading of both the Old and New Testaments, if we take the Old and New Testament and consider them broadly, we find a multitude of passages that seem to overtly forbid the practice of lying. Could we be dealing with a more obvious question this evening at the outset of our lesson tonight? Is Dr. Storms asking a mere rhetorical question in this article published just a few years ago? Is it ever appropriate for Christians to lie? Well, I want to encourage you to pause before giving an overly dogmatic answer to that question. Let me just give you a sampling of some questions to consider at the outset of our lesson tonight that's really going to have significant application to what James argues in the concluding portion of chapter 2. Answer these hypothetical scenarios in your own mind by way of introduction. Is it appropriate to post a beware of dog sign on your fence to prevent potential burglaries even if you don't own a dog? Were the Allies in World War II ethically justified in deceiving Adolf Hitler in regard to the location of the Normandy invasion? Is it wrong for girls to to wear makeup in the effort to make their natural appearance look all the more attractive on a day-to-day basis? Is it appropriate for police to operate radar in unmarked cars? After all, by using unmarked cars, aren't they intentionally deceiving us into thinking that they're just ordinary civilians? Is it ethical to lie to someone when you're taking them on a trip in your car across town to stall for the sake of the secret birthday party that you and their family members have been planning for an extended period of time? 
Is it ethical for Christian missionaries to sneak Bibles and other discipleship resources into countries that forbid anybody from bringing in such material to their land? These are just a small sampling of some of the questions that Dr. Storms proposed in his 2018 article that was published via the Gospel Coalition. The theme of that article was centered on the subject of situational ethics. Situational ethics. The discipline of evaluating whether or not a decision is morally acceptable based on the context in which a decision is made. When considered broadly, situational ethics is one of the most important and practically relevant disciplines that Christians will ever face in this world. For the Christian... The discipline of situational ethics deals with how biblical principles should be applied to our everyday circumstances, especially in circumstances and situations that aren't as black and white as we'd like for them to be. Whether you realize it or not, every time you and I make a decision about how we should live in light of what Scripture teaches, we are engaging in the discipline of situational ethics. And as Christians... We need to be diligent to ensure that we think critically about how we are to model a distinctively Christian ethic throughout every circumstance that we might find ourselves in this world. And with that being said, tonight's lesson is going to provide us with an opportunity to consider how the subject of situational ethics applies to one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture. Namely, How did Rahab's lie, as recorded in the book of Joshua and as alluded to in the book of James, result in her being justified by works, vindicated by works? Or if I could put it in a different way, how can a holy God regard the intentional lie of a sinner as being objective proof and evidence that they are saved? Lord willing, it is these questions that we will seek to address tonight, among other issues, and I'm looking forward to seeing what God may have in store for us as we bring the second chapter of the book of James to a conclusion. As I've mentioned several times now, by way of review, we've reached the conclusion of the fifth observable section contained within the book of James. As you'll recall from previous studies, the book of James was written to function like an instruction manual or a roadmap for the Christian life. When considered as a whole, The central theme of the book of James can be summarized in this way. I hope many of you have it memorized by now. It's at the top of your handouts each week. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. That's the main thrust of what James is demonstrating to us throughout the course of his New Testament letter. As we've discussed over the past six lessons, James uses this section of his letter to call his readers to the task of self-examination. From verse 14 to verse 26 of chapter 2, we see James emphasizing that there are three basic classifications of faith that will be exhibited by those who have been exposed to God's special revelation. From James's vantage point, Every person who's ever been exposed to the true biblical gospel will inevitably fall into one of these three categories that we've been learning about here in this section of his letter. It's with that reality in mind that led James to challenge his first century readers to determine which of the three classifications of faith they possessed. Was it a dead faith as we saw outlined in verses 14 to 17? Was it a demonic faith that they possessed as we discussed over the course of verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2? Or was it a disciple's faith as we've seen portrayed from verse 20 and now up to the end of chapter 2 to verse 26? Which of these three classifications of faith did these first century readers possess? And as it pertains to us tonight, which of those classifications of faith do you and I possess? These are Very important questions that we must ask ourselves when considering this section of James's epistle. You'll recall from our survey of verses 14 to 17 that we were able to observe James's illustration, description, and assessment of a dead faith. In doing so, we ultimately learned that it is both useless and absurd for anybody to say they've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and yet 
not demonstrate any external evidence of that faith. It's absolutely absurd to make such a profession of faith without any accompanying external evidence. It was those biblical and theologically derived principles that set the table for James to transition into a discussion of a demonic faith as contained in verses 18 and 19. As emphasized by James in those verses, any self-identification with the Christian faith that does not stem from a heart that has been born again is simply a meaningless expression of empty religion. It doesn't matter if a person has sound doctrine. It doesn't matter if a person's been baptized, partakes of the Lord's Supper, and is a good standing member in a local church. It doesn't matter if a person is involved in Christian ministry activities, in leadership, giving to Christian causes, devoting themselves to the work of Christ, and yet, as good as all of those things are, and as valuable as all of those things might be, according to James, not according to Dewey, according to James... All external Christian actions are worthless and meaningless and empty in the sight of God if they don't overflow from a heart that loves Him and desires to honor Him. You and I would be better off staying home than showing up to this place tonight or being involved in any Christian activities without first having a heart that loves God and desires to honor God and serve Him in every aspect of our lives. And that sobering instruction contained in verses 18 and 19 paved the way for James to introduce that third classification of faith that we've been studying over the past several weeks. Beginning in verse 20 and now on to the end of chapter 2, we've been looking at what James summarizes as the faith of a disciple, or as you'll see in your handouts, a disciple's faith. That's the crux of verses 20 to 26 of chapter 2. This is a section devoted to describing a disciple's faith. We began our study of a disciple's faith by surveying James's emphatic assertion contained in verse 20, and thereafter doing so, considering the example of Abraham as we saw develop from verse 21 on through verse 24. We spent three lessons on the example of Abraham. I trust you were encouraged and Um, educated about that hero of the faith. I know I really enjoyed getting to study about him and think about how his life is a powerful example to us as to what true saving faith looks like modeled in the sight of God and even, of course, in the sight of man. And it was during our analysis of verses 20 to 24 and specifically looking at the example of Abraham that we were able to observe James's foundational description of what the faith of a disciple looks like. What's the mark of a true disciple? How can we summarize this? The bottom line of the bottom line? Simply in this way. Every true disciple. Let this sink into your soul tonight because I trust that every person in this room identifies as a disciple of Christ. Test your profession against the Word of God. Every true follower of Christ will manifest a lifestyle pattern of works of obedience to God's Word flowing from a heart that loves God and desires to see Him magnified. Or if I could put it in a different way, the true Christian's profession of faith is vindicated and proven to be authentic in the sight of man by their good works rendered to the glory of Almighty God. For James, a lifestyle pattern of obedience to Scripture flowing from a renewed heart proves that a person is truly saved. It doesn't matter how sincere a person may be in their profession of faith. It doesn't matter who they are, what their standing is in a community or church. Nothing else matters to James except for this. Does your lifestyle, number one, conform to the authority and testimony of Scripture? And number two, does that conformity flow from a heart that desires to see God magnified and glorified? That is the mark of a true disciple. And that's what we've been learning from this portion of chapter 2, dealing with the example of Abraham. Tonight, we're going to switch gears a bit. It's going to be centered on the same theme, but we're going to take a look into the example of a probably less familiar character for most of us in this room, the example of Rahab. Verses 25 and 26 of chapter 2 deals with the example of Rahab. 
That's the main heading that we will use to organize all that James communicates in the closing verses of this chapter. Notice that main heading in your handout. The example of Rahab. In our efforts to develop and expound upon this central heading for verses 25 and 26, we're going to utilize three subheadings that should help us make sense of how James draws this section of a letter of his letter to a conclusion. You'll find those subheadings provided in your handouts, and we're going to address each subheading in chronological order. First subheading, at the outset of verse 25, we're going to see the story of Rahab explained. The story of Rahab explained. Second, and continuing our exposition of verse 25, we're going to observe the salvation of Rahab evidenced. The salvation of Rahab evidenced. And third, finally, upon turning our attention to verse 26 and drawing chapter 2 of James's letter to a conclusion, we're going to reflect on the summary of Rahab's example. The summary of Rahab's example. With this outline in mind, let's now dive into our exegesis of verse 25 by seeing the story of Rahab explained. Turn your attention to verse 25 again with me in your Bibles. Let's take this verse apart and think critically about what James has to say and most importantly what the living God has to say through this Scripture. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? At the outset of verse 25, and before we dive into an overview of the story of Rahab, there are two initial observations that I want us to make. The first observation, of course, as we've done on several occasions during our study of the book of James, deals with a literary device that James employs in this verse. Can anybody tell me what literary device James is making use of in verse 25? Rhetorical question. That's the, that's the literary device that James is using here in verse 25. He likes to use rhetorical questions is what we're discovering through James's letter. Rhetorical question is the literary device here in verse 25. So on the basis of James using that literary device, as he's done on several occasions up to this point in his letter, what are the implications for us? Does this mean that James expects this instruction to be anything new for his first century readers? I see a lot of head shaking no. Does everybody agree? It's exactly right. Anytime James has used a rhetorical question up to this point in his letter, which is typically the case when anybody uses a rhetorical question, it indicates that the audience should be very familiar with what the author is trying to communicate. Anytime you see a rhetorical question in literature, it's typically being used for emphasis. The author is trying to emphasize a principle to his readers or to her readers that the readers should already be familiar with. And that's exactly what we've seen done by James up to this point in his letter. That takes us now to the second initial observation that I want us to make prior to examining the story of Rahab. And to help you make this observation, I want you guys to answer this key question. Here it is. On what grounds can James assume that his first century readers would have been familiar with what he's trying to emphasize here in verse 25 by way of rhetorical question? What grounds do we have in the text to give us that clue? Sorry. It was in the Old Testament. Yeah, in the Old Testament. Now, why would that be um, grounds for James to make that assumption? It was, wasn't the Old Testament very common? Like everybody had, most of them had copies of the Old Testament. Did y'all hear that? Everybody hear what Sai said in the front row? That's exactly right. That is one of the primary um, evidences from the text that we can see uh, regarding why James would have expected his first century readers to be familiar with this line of reasoning. The original recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians who lived in a predominantly oral culture. What that means is it would have not been uncommon for the vast majority of the people that James is writing this letter to to have had a lot of the Old Testament memorized for themselves. They would have been very familiar with those sacred writings. And since the story of Rahab is found in the Old Testament, it's only fair to assume that James would have expected his readers to know exactly what he's trying to argue, exactly what he's trying to communicate at this point 
in his letter when he makes reference to Rahab in verse 25 of chapter 2. Very good sign. What do you think the second evidence would be for James having grounds to assume that his first century readers would have been familiar with what he's trying to emphasize in verse 25? What do you guys think? Any... Look at the text. Yeah, look at verse 25. What in the text do you see there that might be indication that James would expect his readers to pick up and follow everything that he's been arguing up to this point, that they would be familiar with it? I'll give you a hint. It's towards the... Okay, okay, stop right there. In the same way, what do you, what do you think the significance of that is, Whit? He's comparing what he's about to say with everything that he said before. Remember, context is key. The answer is in the text. When James writes in the same way at the beginning of verse 25, he's associating the example of Abraham as he described in verses 21 to 24, and he's, he, he's identifying that teaching. He is associating that instruction with what he's going to say about the example of Rahab in verse 25 and 26. In other words, there's continuity shared between how Abraham's faith was proven as genuine in the sight of men and how Rahab's faith was proven as authentic in the sight of men. This continuity between the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab provide James with the grounds to assume that his first century audience would have been able to easily connect the dots up to this point in his argumentation. Now, having made these two initial observations by way of preface, we can now transition into a consideration of the story of Rahab. In verse 25, James says that Rahab the harlot, skip a little bit, received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab received messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, what's he talking about? In that reference. Well, he's talking about what we find in the historical narrative recorded for us in the second chapter of the book of Joshua. I want you to turn there with me. Turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Joshua so we can read a first hand account of what James is alluding to in verse 25. Now, be honest, there's no shame here. How many of you guys have even read or heard about Rahab before? Be honest. Show of hands. Alright, some hands up, some hands not up. And that's okay. That's why we're going to do what we're about to do. We're going to read the totality of Joshua 2. We're going to make sure that everybody in here, regardless of your familiarity with the story of Rahab, we're going to make sure that everybody in here understands the context of what James is referring to. Let me give you that context as you're turning to Joshua 2 before we look specifically at that portion of Scripture. At this point in the Old Testament record, Moses had just passed away and Joshua has been appointed as the leader of the nation of Israel. In chapter 1 of the book of Joshua, we see God commissioning Joshua to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River and to begin their conquest of the land that God had promised to give to the nation of Israel throughout the Pentateuch, throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Chapter 1 concludes with Joshua and the people of Israel responding to God's commission and obedience, which leads to the first stage of Israel's conquest of what would be the promised land as recorded in chapter 2. So as we prepare to read chapter 2 together, we need to be mindful that what we're reading in Joshua 2, what we're reading is the earliest phase of Israel's efforts to obtain the land that God had continually promised to them over a span of hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. Let's read this historical account together with this background information in mind, and in doing so, I trust we'll clearly see the story of Rahab explained and should get us on an even playing field for what we'll consider throughout the rest of tonight's lesson. Starting in verse 1. It's going to be a long text, so please do your best to follow along and stay with me. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, 
view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them then quickly, for you will overtake them. But Rahab had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, Rahab came up to the men on the roof and said to those men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. Rahab said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to Rahab, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear. Unless, when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house of your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. Verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. Rahab said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. That's the story of Rahab explained from the testimony of the book of Joshua. As we shift our focus now back to the book of James, and as we seek to connect this account from the book of Joshua that James is arguing for back in verse 25 of his letter, I want us to now observe, second subheading, the salvation of Rahab evidenced. The salvation of Rahab evidenced. In verse 25 of chapter 2, James is arguing that Rahab was justified by works through her actions of hiding the spies of Israel in her house and by helping them not be captured by those who directly reported 
to the king of Jericho. According to James, Rahab's faith was authenticated and proven to be genuine through her act of deceiving the government authorities of her land. Say it differently. The external evidence of Rahab's faith in Yahweh was seen in assisting the foreigners who would overthrow the land in which she lived by way of lying to the government authorities that she was to be in subjection to as a citizen of Jericho. You guys starting to feel uncomfortable yet by James's interpretation of Joshua 2? I hope that you're starting to at least think a little bit about some of the difficulties that this connection may arise, at least at surface level. If that passage from James wasn't concerning enough, potentially, well, the book of Hebrews takes it one step further. Rahab is mentioned in the hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, we see the author making the following declaration about Rahab, this same woman who intentionally deceived the governing authorities of her own land to which her land would be decimated and overthrown by the nation of Israel. Listen to this description, this Holy Spirit-inspired characterization of Rahab in Hebrews 11.31. We read, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. My friends, what are we to make of this mind-blowing conundrum, at least on the surface? Seems like these texts are irreconcilable with one another. Is this evidence that God is arbitrary in what He regards as objectively right and objectively wrong? After all, how can a holy God regard the intentional lie of a sinner as being objective proof and evidence that they are saved? How do we make that connection? How do we make sense of all this? Well, as I've said before, it goes without saying that this interpretive issue has been one of the most difficult to resolve throughout church history. Before I provide you with my proposed solution to this matter, I want to give you two of the most commonly held views that can be found amongst Orthodox Bible-believing commentators. Since both of these views are well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, we certainly need to say by way of preface that we should be respectful towards those who may disagree with how we go about making sense of this highly disputed interpretive issue. You've also probably noticed by now that there are no discussion questions recorded in your handouts tonight. The reason for that is due to my desire for us as a group to engage in a thoughtful group discussion on this specific topic for our lesson. So I hope you guys came prepared to talk tonight because I want to hear your thoughts on how we resolve this matter. But before we talk, before we have our group discussion, let me give you that overview of the two major views. And um, I want us to think through both of them critically. And I'd love to hear where you guys land on this subject. I'm not going to tell you where I land until after you guys tell me where you land. So that's the, that's the value of being the teacher. Uh, I get to hold my cards close to the chest. All right, first proposed solution. Here it is. The first view argues that it is never appropriate to lie because God is truth and forbids all instances of lying throughout His Word. I think your knee-jerk reaction tonight during the, or during the introduction of this lesson, I think some of you guys probably hold this first view just based on uh, some of the responses that I got um, but that's view number one. It's never appropriate to lie because God is truth and he forbids all instances of lying throughout his word. Proponents of this view would cite the ninth commandment from Exodus 20.16 in addition to texts like Proverbs 12.22 and Colossians 3.9. For the sake of clarification, let me just read those texts. They're just a sampling. There's many other passages in Scripture that we could go, Old and New Testament respectively, that overtly forbid lying. But these are just two, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Proverbs 12.22 says this, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. Colossians 3.9, 
Do not lie to one another, since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices. So when we apply this to the story of Rahab, proponents of this first view would note that Scripture never commends the lie itself. It never says, good job, Rahab, for lying. Rather, says proponents of this first view, only the faith of Rahab is what Scripture explicitly commends, explicitly puts its stamp of approval on. It wasn't the lie that Rahab is getting praised for. It's the faith of Rahab. In other words, says proponents of this first view, although God graciously used Rahab's lie to accomplish a positive result, as he often does in the case of sinful actions that are carried out by humanity, that doesn't inherently mean that the takeaway from the story of Rahab should be that lying is ever condoned by the Lord. Those who hold to this view would argue that in a fallen world, God often accomplishes His purposes in spite of our sinful choices, which ultimately magnify God's sovereignty, mercy, and grace to bring about good outcome through sinful behaviors. In the case of this first view, proponents would say that Rahab was just a new believer. She simply did what she believed to be best in the situation that she was placed into. And despite her sin, despite her spiritual immaturity, God was still able to use everything in that circumstance to accomplish His purpose. That is a flyover summary of view number one. It's also included in your handouts. A few noteworthy proponents of this first view from church history would be St. Augustine, John Calvin, and Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem today has um, published the most bought systematic theology textbook in the world today. So you have the, the top systematic theologian, probably of the last 50 to 70 years, who would hold this view. John Calvin is considered one of the greatest interpreters in the history of the church. And Augustine, whom most historians, theologians, and philosophers would say that Western thought is most dependent upon him. It's a pretty lofty company that holds to that view. Let's look at the second major view now that's been expressed throughout church history regarding Rahab's lie. The second view. This second view argues that in certain scenarios, it is appropriate to lie, but only when the act of telling the truth would do harm to one's neighbor. Since the second greatest commandment is to love one's neighbor as themselves, as taught by our Lord in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, adherence to this second view would maintain that there are times when telling the truth would cause us to violate the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. In substantiating this argument, proponents of this second view would note how the ninth commandment only forbids bearing false witness against one's neighbor. Said differently, adherence to this perspective would say that if the act of lying is done in service to or in protection to one's neighbor, then the ninth commandment is not technically being violated. In addition to the narrative about Rahab that we saw recorded in Joshua 2, those who hold to this second view would cite the account of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, verses 15 to 22. In the context of that passage, we find that the king of Egypt was growing increasingly concerned about the Israelites who were at that time enslaved to the Egyptians and was doing everything in his power to prevent the Israelites from continuing to experience numerical growth. So in verses 15 to 22 of Exodus 1, we read of one of the horrific decrees made by the king of Egypt to try to prevent the Israelites from growing. Allow me to read that passage to you with a special emphasis placed on verses 17 to 21. would encourage you to flip there in your Bibles as well. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, reading on to verse 22. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, just to make sure that you guys know where to look. And since it's chapter 1, it's going to be right at the beginning. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. 
Listen to the historical narrative recorded by Moses. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephara, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then you shall let her live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to throw into the Nile, but every daughter you are to keep alive. Now as seen from verses 17, 19, 20, and 21 from this passage in Exodus, Moses appears to make the same connection that James is making in verse 25 with regard to Rahab. Namely, here's the connection. The midwife's faith in God was vindicated, was proven to be genuine through their act of deceiving the king of Egypt. When taking this parallel from the passage in the book of Exodus in conjunction with James's commentary on Rahab in his letter, proponents of this second view believe that the Bible is providing explicit instances in which the act of lying is justified. And lastly, proponents of this second view would also note that while Scripture never commends the lies that are recorded in Exodus and Joshua, Scripture likewise never condemns those lies either. They're not commended, they're not condemned. Noteworthy proponents of this second view from church history, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, John Gill, the greatest Baptist theologian in church history, and R.C. Sproul, the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He went to be with the Lord in 2017. Not a uh, (laughs) camp that I would want to disagree with either. So uh, we've got two viewpoints that, that are held by some of the greatest theologians and thinkers in the history of the church. And we're going to solve the issue tonight at First Baptist Church of Edna in 2021. What do you guys think? Which of these two views is the right one? Opening up the floor for discussion at this time. Mikey? So the view's right because John MacArthur. I should have thrown him in there. Uh, that would have solved it for Michael. Um, it's a good thought. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a real story. So what he's saying, it's a, it's a real story. John MacArthur's at his church. This crazy guy comes in with a gun. He looks deranged. He says, where's John MacArthur? And John MacArthur said, let me go find him for you. And gets the gets the security guards on campus, and they took him into custody. But, um, you know, is John MacArthur in sin at that moment? I mean, depends on maybe how you look at this issue. Whip. I feel like like my emotion like the emotion part of me wants to go with two. Because like I don't know, I feel like something's in the circumstance, but like logically, number one makes more sense. That's kinda where I was during the preparation for this. Uh, that was my initial thought. Um, doesn't mean I've landed there by the way. Um Cy? Well, it does like you said, it doesn't condone and doesn't condemn. So you find that middle ground where if that lie can save someone, then it's... So you're saying you too? Yeah. So make sure I quote this view correctly. Um, so the act of lying, second view saying that the act of lying is it's acceptable if it's being done in service to somebody or in protection for somebody. 
So you're saying that if it protects if it protects somebody or serves a greater good for that person, then it's okay to to lie. That's what you're, you're saying. The second view side. Okay, Hannah. I feel like personally, it's hard to argue with that because, like, I don't know. Like Rahab is still like I don't know regarded very highly by mm-hmm. even though even though she lied. But I don't I don't know. Yeah. Just so Lily. Uh, what's the difference between holding back some of the truth and not lying? So I guess I would I would say um, proponents of the second view would say that if you if you hold back the truth for the sake of for the sake of protecting somebody for the sake of protecting somebody's well being or for the sake of um, of loving them like for example they would say that like the undercover people who went into the abortion clinics and filmed everything that was going on when they were dismembering babies they were acting like they were interested. But really, they were going in there to expose them. The argument they would make, and I, I stumbled across this when I was studying for this lesson, the argument they would make is that they were showing love to unborn children in that act. So they were loving their neighbor as themselves by deceiving the abortion clinics in their actions. So to your question, I think they would say that if you're holding back the truth for your own benefit or to cover up sin of somebody else, then that that would fall under the you know violation of the ninth commandment. However, if you are withholding certain parts of the truth for the sake of trying to protect somebody's well-being or to follow the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, in that instance, it would be acceptable, is what is what they would say. Ellie, um, I just wanted to add on the size. Yeah. Not just protecting someone. Yeah, protecting somebody for the right reason. So, like, their life is in jeopardy type thing. Versus, I don't want their reputation to be damaged, so I'm not going to tell the truth. That would would probably be in that camp. Did anybody have their hand raised up over here? No. Whit? I feel like the argument that since the second greatest commandment is the one's name, that's kind of invalid because that would be like. So there's two commandments, but then they both go against each other and they can't. So, yeah, so, the, so what Christ is saying in that passage is the greatest commandment is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Most people would say that was Christ summarizing commandments one through four, the Ten Commandments, and then loving your neighbor as yourself is commandments five through ten. So he's, what he's doing is he's just saying verses or commandments one through four is talking about how man is supposed to relate to God, the vertical dimension. And then commandments 5 through 10 is the horizontal, how man is supposed to relate to his fellow man. Um, so it's not, it's not as if they're trying to... He's not, James, it, this argument's not trying to put those at odds with one another. They're just saying that because lying is the ninth commandment and that falls into that category that Christ is talking about, then that's how they make that connection. Um, it's also interesting to note, we talk about love in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Let me throw another cog into this discussion. It says, love rejoices with the truth. So the question becomes, how can you love somebody with no truth? So, you know, something to think about as well. But the truth would be, like, the Word of God, the Gospel itself. Like, yep, would be the, yeah. Through Jesus. And I think whenever we prioritize that, the fact that, like, we're withholding the truth or, like, blatantly lying about something, if somebody can spend eternity with the Lord that you know so, let me, so I think I think that's a really good point so so what you're saying is if withholding the truth is withholding truth that's in scripture or consistent with scripture that's what's applying in 1 Corinthians 13 6 not like hey those genes really make you look fat but I'm you know am I in sin for not telling you that yeah. right okay um, hey that was an example that Wayne Gru- or that uh, Sam Storms used so uh, don't act like I'm being overly crass here. Uh, Morgan. Um, I'll go for a few. One, uh, it, uh, in one of the commandments, it says, Thou shalt not lie. Well, God never changes in the past, uh, the future. He doesn't change. And what's the special word for that? Uh, Immutability. Me, uh, that. 
Sin works itself out for good. So that's review one. Um, anyone else who hasn't jumped into the discussion want to share where they think they land? I, w- I would say both views because Rahab, by her protecting the, the spies, not only identified herself as acknowledging the one true God and knew that annihilation was coming to the city, so she was trying self-preservation and to take care of them and also trying to protect them. I mean, so I think she was doing what she knew was right. So even though she was, she didn't know how to, she didn't know how to repent. She didn't know how to be. Right. But she was doing what she thought was right. Right. And so, and also she was protecting them because she's like, look, this is, these are servants of the most high God and I'm, I'm going to protect them. But I also believe in the second view like with the Underground Railroad. Yeah. And then the, uh, the Holocaust, people that housed, I mean, hit the Jews mm-hmm. from, from annihilation. Yeah. You know, that was that was right to lie about that. Right. So I, I believe in both. You've already gone. <laughs> okay, what do you want to say? Go for it. I think just on a moral basis, sometimes you got to choose the lesser two evils. Okay. Uh, Matt? I would go with... Uh, if you're, like you said just a minute ago, uh, lying for a good purpose, like to protect someone. To protect or serve their right. better, their greater good, as it were. I do that, but lying, yeah. lying about something else that doesn't sure. really do anything good, I would count as. Sure. And remember, the Ninth Commandment, it's saying, it's bearing false witness against your neighbor. When it says against, it's saying like, for their detriment. Like, it's not for their good. I'm not doing this in service to them or in protection. I'm doing it in, for their detriment, for their demise. You know what I mean? That's that's what they're going for there. Or what Moses was going for there. I feel like in Rahab's case, especially what she did, like, the cause for the lie was right. It was like justified. But the lie itself wasn't this. Okay, so that would be, that would be one, you're still kind of in that first view there. Um, that, that, I, in fact, that's a that's a paraphrase of what Augustine would argue here. Um, so, okay, so everybody everybody jumped in that wants to jump in. Okay, great. So, appreciate your willingness and honesty to jump in. Again, I emphasized this earlier. If you find yourself with a different interpretation on something like this, this is not something to break fellowship over. It's not something to have dissension about. It's not something to cause any hardship between brothers or sisters in Christ. Um, So I'm just saying that right now. The view that I lean towards currently is the second view. Um, I have the highest level of respect for both the first view and the men who hold to it and the women who hold to that as well. Um, But as I studied this text, as I've reflected on how others have commented on this text, I believe, again, I could change my mind in a year from now. This, this is how uh, <laughs> difficult this is. But for the time being, I believe that in some extreme instances, again, talking about the issue of situational ethics, in extreme instances, the act of telling the truth could potentially be harmful to one's neighbor and potentially harmful to the cause of Christ. And Alan mentioned um, the, uh, during the Holocaust let me give you what, this kind of does it for me as, as a pastor and as somebody in Christian ministry. Here's kind of why I land in this second view. Think about the underground missionary work that our brothers and sisters are currently doing in parts of the world that forbid Christianity. Think about it. Would it truly be loving to our neighbors in those parts of the world and would it truly be faithful to the Great Commission if we didn't do everything in our power to reach those parts of the world with the gospel, even if it means that through our missionary efforts, we have to deceive the leadership that's in those parts of the world who are putting those laws in place that forbid our obedience to the Great Commission mandate. That does it for me. Um, 
You know, our, our loyalty will always be to the Most High God and to His Word. And if that means that in an event like that we've got to lie, and again, lying in the sense of in service to our, our neighbor, in service to the cause of Christ, then in light of the testimony of Joshua 2 and how James interprets that and how the book of Hebrews interprets that and in light of what we see in the book of Exodus. I'm personally persuaded for now that the second view is the best one to take. But again, wit, whoever else held to the first year, I love you. I could be there next week. <laughs> Hopefully not. I spent a lot of time preparing this message. So um, anyways, that would kind of be for not. Um, okay, really quickly, third point. We've got about 10 minutes or so left before we need to dismiss. We've been able to see the story of Rahab explained tonight. We've been able to observe the salvation of Rahab evidenced. And lastly, as we prepare to draw our time of corporate worship to a close, I want us to analyze the summary of Rahab's example. The summary of Rahab's example. Notice verse 26 again with me in your copy of God's Word. James chapter 2 and verse 26. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James writes, For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. As indicated by the word for at the outset of verse 26, James draws his argumentation about the example of Rahab to a conclusion. In doing so, James restates the central theme that has permeated everything that he has written within this fifth observable section of his letter. Namely, that faith apart from works is dead. As Douglas Moo rightly notes in his commentary, and I've included this quote in your handouts, he says that just as the body without its invigorating spirit or breath of life is nothing more than a corpse, so also faith without the works that give it vitality is dead. James is not concerned with works being added to faith, but that his readers possess the right kind of faith, a faith that manifests itself through works. Without this kind of faith, Moo concludes, James is clear that Christianity becomes a barren orthodoxy and it loses any right to be called faith. End quote. So in our efforts to summarize the example of Rahab, drawing our lesson tonight to a conclusion, I want you to consider who she was in contrast to Abraham and how James's reference to her in this portion of his letter would have affected his first century readers. Take yourself back some 2,000 years, put yourself in a predominantly Jewish culture, and think about how the example of Rahab would have impacted you. Whereas Abraham is regarded by many as one of the greatest and most significant figures in the Bible, the father of the nation of Israel, consider the not-so-impressive credentials that Rahab brings to the table. Think about this from a Jewish perspective. Rahab was a Gentile. Rahab was a woman. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a citizen of a city that was despised by the nation of Israel and was under the judgment of God. Doesn't stack up too well to the father of the faith, does it? But yet, despite all of these unimpressive qualities, the testimony of Joshua 2, 19-13, James 2, 25 and 26, and Hebrews eleven thirty one indicate this central truth that I want all of us to take away from tonight's lesson. If you forget everything I've said up to this point in tonight's lesson, this is the truth that you need to take away tonight. Here it is. There is no sinner that God cannot save and work through in the mightiest of ways. Let me say that again. There is no sinner that God cannot save and work through in the mightiest of ways. In fact, passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-31 to 31 testify that God is in the business of glorifying Himself through the salvation and earthly lives of the least likeliest of people. My friends, it doesn't matter what your past might be. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity might be. 
It doesn't matter what your gender might be. It doesn't matter how noble or how ordinary your family might be. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status might be. It doesn't matter what present shortcomings and hardships you may be battling even as you sit here tonight. In the final analysis, God is both willing and able to use the lowliest of sinners to bring glory to His great name. All we need to do is believe. I love how Richard Hess emphasizes this reality in his commentary on the example of Rahab. Hess writes, The example of Rahab confirms that God welcomes all people, whatever their condition. The opportunity for salvation is available for all who come to Him by faith, even the chief of sinners. Rahab exhibited faith and understanding in the God who saved her. And in doing so, Hess concludes... Rahab became part of the family line that would produce the birth of Jesus Christ. And she continues to serve as a model for the faith for all Christians. End quote. If you're here tonight and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you've professed faith in Christ, but you know in your heart of hearts that you really don't know Him, you're just playing the game. You're just going through the motions. You have not yet truly received Him as the Lord and Savior and ultimate authority in your life. There is nothing preventing you from this point moving forward in your life from being a vessel in which God can use you to accomplish His purposes and glorify Himself. All you need to do, my friend, if that's you tonight, if you know that you do not know God through faith in Jesus Christ, all you need to do right now is receive Him as Lord and Savior by faith. Trust that Jesus did everything in His earthly life, in His death on the cross, and in His bodily resurrection to make you right with God and have your sins forgiven, both now and forevermore. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Should you believe in Jesus? Should you surrender your life to His Lordship? You will not only be saved, but you will begin to be conformed into His moral character. And in that process, God will use you to bring glory to Himself in ways that far exceed your greatest imagination. If you haven't done so already, I plead with you, repent of your unbelief and life of sinful rebellion. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith. And like Rahab, like Rahab, watch how the God in heaven above and on earth beneath might use your life as a testimony to His extravagant power, grace, mercy, and love. You come to Christ tonight if you haven't done so already. Let's close our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the journey you've taken us on over the past 16 months in our study of the book of James, our hearts are filled with joy. We thank you for the privilege that it is to study your word. And Father, we're so grateful for the incredible links you've gone to enable us to have a personal relationship with you. Father, we know that apart from your word, We would have no objective way of knowing who you are or how we should live in a manner that's pleasing in your sight. Father, we also know from the testimony of your word and from the testimony of redemptive history that without our Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no objective way of being reconciled to you. Oh God, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world to live a perfect life and to die on the cross in the place of sinners, to rise victoriously from the grave and to ascend to your right hand. Father, we thank you that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can have absolute assurance that our sins have been forgiven and that we can know you as our Father in heaven, both now and forevermore. And God, we also... Thank you for the reminder that Rahab is to us, Father, that regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our socioeconomic status, our gender, our past mistakes, or even our present shortcomings, whatever those battles or insecurities might be, we can never out your mercy, grace, and love, for it superabounds to all who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And Father, regardless of how insignificant we might be, 
We thank you that you still use us to glorify you through good works that flow from the root of faith, from hearts that want to honor you, worship you, and serve you in every aspect of our lives. God, as we now leave this time of corporate worship, my prayer is that all of us in this room tonight and for anybody listening to the audio recording would would leave this place changed in, in that we would frequently meditate on these glorious truths so that we might further become more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in our character, that we might model Christ-like conduct wherever you call us. Keep us safe now as we leave this place. I thank you for every family represented in this room. I pray for rich blessings, physical and spiritual, upon them. And that you would be supremely magnified in and through all of us as we represent your kingdom and First Baptist Church of Edna in our community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.